Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Ann Tack. Welcome back, listeners. For this episode, I am absolutely thrilled to be hosting a very, very special guest today, the one and only author, Ellen Feldman. Oh my gosh, I cannot thank you enough for joining me and the listeners here. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I mean, this is just kind of blowing my mind. And listeners, as most of you know, today's guest, Ellen Feldman, is a 2009 Guggenheim Fellow. She is the author of The Living and the Lost, which was the 2022 winner of the Long Island Reads Award. And oh my gosh, I love that book. I still think about that book. And then Ellen gave us Paris. Never Leaves You, which has been translated into 13 languages, Terrible Virtue, optioned by Black Bicycle for a feature film. I am ready and here for that. She's also the author of The Unwitting, Next to Love, Scottsboro, another one that I loved, which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize, The Boy Who Loved Anne Frank, which was a New York Times book review editor's choice, and The Amazing Lucy. Her most recent novel and the book we are here to talk about today is called The Trouble With You, which will be published in February of this year. And Jessica Anya Blau, author of Mary Jane, says that The Trouble With You is a heartbreaking joy to read and is an ode to the power, resilience, and ambition of women everywhere in any era. Oh, holy cow, is that beautifully said. So, Ellen, if you would, please tell us about The Trouble With You. The Trouble With You is about Fanny Fabricant, a woman. This is post-war America, post-war New York City, as a matter of fact. And like most women of her generation, she was brought up to be a wife and mother. That was her calling in life. And then after the war, the men are coming home and taking off their uniforms and getting into civilian clothes and going back to their jobs. And everybody's having babies. And in an instant, she becomes just just a mother, no longer a wife. And she finds that she has to raise her daughter on her own and work to support herself and her daughter. And she has been totally unprepared for this. And what she meets is what women in post-war America met. Many of them, as you know, the men went off to fight during the war. The women came out of their homes and took all kinds of jobs. I mean, they worked assembly lines, they ran government agencies, they delivered planes. Suddenly the war is over and the government was really afraid of a depression, of unemployment and depression. So they sent the women back into their homes, their kitchens, their bedrooms. That's where they belonged. And this became an economic necessity became a social stricture. So women who had to work, if they were widowed or their shameful sisters divorced, they were pitied. But if women chose to work, they were really demonized. I mean, there are all these quotes from, quote, experts that if a woman works, she loses her femininity. You know, she can work at home. She can be a drudge in the kitchen and she's feminine. But if she goes out to get a job, then she's, you know, forget it. She'll never marry. She's a loser in life, all of this. And this is the world that Fanny has to work in and finds out that she really likes working. She loves her daughter. She loves being a mother. She also loves the new world that's opening up for her. And it's the prejudice against that and the prejudice from other people and also her own problems with this because it takes a lot to go against not only society's strictures, but everything you were brought up to believe in. And that's Fanny's, that's Fanny's journey. 
in this and, book. And you mentioned the speaking of women and their roles, the book focuses on how these roles, like you said, changed during the war. And then the perception of these very roles. One scene really stands out for me, which is illustrates what you're saying. It's when Max, uh, Fanny's husband, is shipping out. And they're saying goodbye to their families on the platform, on the train platform. And Fanny notices something. She says the handful of wax waves and nurses waited in twos and threes. Strangely enough, no one came down to see them off. And when Fanny thought about it later, she couldn't imagine why. All she knew for sure was that Life magazine had commented on the fact in a pictorial essay. Oh my gosh, what a scene. Yeah, I was amazed. I knew those pictures from earlier books that I'd researched. And I love I loved one of the the cover of that issue of life had a soldier and his wife embracing as you know as he was shipping out. And his backpack, he his name was Feldman. So I always felt very close to that. Yes. No one I knew, but it's a common name. But I just love that picture so much. Anyway, I was amazed. I saw the wax and the wave sitting. And not until I read did I realize that they were alone. And why no one was seeing them off? I mean, they were certainly patriotic, too, and maybe their families disapproved of their going. Uh, maybe they were single women who didn't have families. I don't know. But it was very sad because you see all these very, from that issue of life and other pictures, obviously, you see all these very moving pictures of families, couples, and, and with their small children saying goodbye. And these women were shipping out alone with each other, but alone. And I love that Fanny notices and makes a point. Thank you, Ellen, for letting us see that um, on the page. But I, I thought that was such an interesting thing to put in the book because I didn't know. I didn't know about that. So, of course, I went back and looked for the pictures from Life magazine, but I did not know about the soldier with Feldman on the backpack. So I will now be looking. I will now be looking for that. I also want to get to the title. This sort of hinges on everything that we just said. The Trouble With You is a perfect title. It's an apt title, right? It's perfect not just for Fanny, but it's also for her Aunt Rose, her friend Susanna. How did you choose that title? Did you have another one in the mix? I have a confession to make. I resisted that title. My editor and publisher loved it, and I it took me a long time to get it. I couldn't come up with the title. I had terrible titles for this book. And then after I lived with this for a couple of days with Trouble With You, as you're just saying, it came to me that it's all these women who were not recognized, who were disapproved of, again, demonized for what they want to do. I mean, her friend Susanna goes to law school, and I've read instances like this where if you're a wife of a law student and you're sitting in taking notes for your husband because he's ill, oh, his buddies will treat you very well. But if you're a woman who's going to become a lawyer yourself, they, they, they did everything to make life more difficult for her. And I think the same was true of most graduate schools at the time. I can't think of a better title. As I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, the trouble with her is I could hear that derisive tone of voice. You know, the trouble with you is, and and that sort of accusatory pointing finger, it really resonated with me. So I'm so glad. And you say also Rose, who was really, I mean, she's a, an unusual woman. I loved that character. I, I, the more I wrote her, the more I got to know her and loved her. And she was so disapproved of her. I mean, she sent her brothers through school and they still thought she was trouble of the trouble with you, mm-hmm. a failure who wants her advice, who cares about her. You know, it, it was it, you're, you're right. The, the, the title is apt. And I am so grateful to my publisher. 
<laughs> which, you know, when I think of Rose, I did love her. The more she is revealed to the reader, you want more of her backstory after everything that she has done. They're like, yeah, thanks a lot. But the trouble with you is, oh, gosh. And I just kept thinking of it throughout the entire book. Rose is a great character. I already have somebody in mind who would play her in the movie. <laughs> But I'll tell you who I think off mic. I want readers to read her by themselves. Um, all of your books, they are excellent historical fiction pieces. As you can tell, I'm fangirling. What made you set the trouble with you in this time period, this 1940s piece of, like you said, New York City history? And what inspired Fanny's story? I wanted to deal with women in the 50s and because women today are so surprised at some of the strictures we had to live with and some of the rules, and not we, I mean, I was not, put it this way, it was still lingering when I was growing up. Mm. And I was fascinated by this. What created Fanny or inspired Fanny is actually very personal. My father died when I was seven. And I remember, of course, I remember much about it, but one thing that always stayed with me was people saying about my mother, you know, isn't it sad? She's got three little girls and stuff like this. But at least she doesn't have to go out to work. This was the big relief. And I grew up accepting this wisdom isn't in mommy's home. Of course, I, I liked that. And only after I was in college and graduate school did I realize that it probably would have been a very good thing for my mother to go have to go out to work. I mean, it would have been awful if she had okay. to, couldn't take care of us. But I don't think she ever would have gotten over the loss of my father. He was very young and it was shock and sudden. I think that she wouldn't have gotten over him, but she her life would have opened up a little and she wouldn't have focused only on her three daughters and a domestic scene where the husband no longer existed. And I joke that this was my mother's chance at a do-over. Oh, I imagine a better life for her. I mean, she led a good life. She raised the three of us, but it was kind of what would have happened to her. It, it's my fantasy of, of a, a set of better life for her. Very personal, very personal. And I, I, I love everything about Fanny. As I've said, when you are writing the book, was the prologue, which hooked me immediately, was that always there or did you have it without the prologue? You added that later. Where does the prologue come in? That came in very early because it was setting Fanny up mm -hmm. for going to be the, the problem or the challenge to her life. And I wanted it, this was hard to do because I wanted it to be a happy moment, but I wanted the reader to sense this can't be as good as it looks. Something terrible is going to happen. And you did that, boy, because I kept thinking every time I turned a new page in the prologue, I thought, oh my gosh, what is she going to do to us? I I was nervous. Also, the scenes of New York City in the wintertime. We don't really get that much snow anymore, but I can remember the snow and how quiet things were. Just all of that. You set that up so beautifully. Thank you. I, yeah. And that I read a lot about that blizzard. It was really, it was shocking because they didn't predict it. And the area came to a standstill in that. 
Yeah, I I could feel all that. It was just sort of very evocative. The things that take place in New York City during the 40s and, and all of that. I had memories of doing certain things in Manhattan, taking my sister to chock full of nuts in the 60s. Like there's all of these things, you know, and I, I really felt, um, my grandfather used to be the manager of the Horn and Hard Art on 42nd Street. So like a lot of the, and I have actually the Horn and Hard Art baking pans in my house. <laughs> So, I love it. Yeah. So a lot of that just um and the historical the historical pieces that you throw in there, um Arnold Rothstein and the Longchamp store, like all of those things, I just thought, oh my gosh, I, I almost wanted a map of all of the it places is. that you mentioned in the city because I thought, oh gosh, let's let's take a walking tour of everything with Ellen Feldman. I would go on that tour. <laughs> Great idea. I'd love to do it. (laughs) And we can do all those fun things. Um, The book takes place in the 1940s. We're right smack in the middle of the blacklist, the Red Scare. And on page 166, there's a quote about librarians. Rose and Fanny are on the phone. Rose tells Fanny, I didn't tell you I had dinner with my librarian buddy, the one who was fired for refusing to sign a loyalty oath. And it's a surprising sentence, I guess, in the sense that it's not so surprising these days when you hear a lot of the things that are going on with libraries and current events as they are not just for librarians, but for women as well. I wondered what that was like writing that and then opening the paper the next day and seeing all these other things that are happening. Yes. I mean, I was fascinated by, I wanted to write about that librarian. And as you say, it's just a line, really, because People who think, when they think about the blacklist, they think of this, uh, the Hollywood 10 and that sort of thing. And it's the glamorous people we know. But there were many, many people anonymous to the rest of the world, you know, known only to their families and friends who lost their jobs, teachers and librarians and people who were thought to influence young minds. I love that. And I, I certainly hope teachers and librarians do influence young minds. And they were they were fired if they wouldn't uh, sign a loyalty oath. But I wasn't as aware when I was writing this because I, by the time a book is published, you know, you've written it two years ago at least. And then as time has progressed since then, it's appalling. It's I mean, there there are stories every day in the paper about librarians not only getting fired, but being threatened by the community. Mm-hmm. It's insane. I, we never thought it would come to this again. Which is why I think this book is going to resonate so beautifully with book discussions, with book groups. When I was reading about the etiquette, when I think about the etiquette of that time, when a couple would go out to dinner, two people would go out on a date. The woman never gave her order directly to the waiter. She tells her date and he orders for her. And I'm not sure how I feel about that exactly. Like I remember things like that happening, but I, I was, it was a bit of a shock to read that again. It's so funny because somebody, an interviewer asked me, she said, I was shocked at some of the things, the dating practices or, you know, rules. And I was trying to think what it was. And then she said, just what you're saying, but you don't speak to the waiter directly. You tell the date or your husband what you want. As I said, a lot of this filtered down to the time I was growing up. But also I went back and looked at etiquette books and women's magazines of the late 40s and early 50s. And it was appalling. I mean, boy, the the line we were fed was was just amazing. Yeah, you won't be respected. You won't be a nice girl. You don't have manners. All of these things, and, and it was all to catch the man. 
That's what was so appalling. Don't be yourself because, you know, who would want yourself? You better be this sunny, well-groomed, well-behaved young woman. God, my face would be frozen in a permanent smile. I mean... (laughs) I don't know how I I think of the Stepford Wives or something. Um, Having said all of this about etiquette and what women aren't supposed to do and what they're supposed to do in this rule book and, oh, my gosh, this Miss Manners kind of thing, she has to get a job. And she gets this job as a sort of a secretary or an assistant to someone who runs I don't want to call them a soap opera, but sort of a serials kind of radio serials. It's a soap opera, but they don't call on on the soap opera. They don't call them soap operas. I loved that deep dive into how those were written, how they were produced, how they were made, the people behind the scenes. What made you put Fanny in this role as this uh, sort of soap opera writer? I had a hard time finding a career for her because she was not prepared to do anything. But this is the weirdest thing. It came to me one day and I was talking to a writer friend. She also writes fiction and we have a lot of discussions about work. She's invaluable to me. I, I love this friend. And she said, oh, no, go with the soaps. It's a good idea. And then once I started to write it, this sounds very strange. I had totally forgotten that I was sent to soap school when I was a young writer. And there's there's an article coming on this in Literary Hub. One of the networks decided that they were going to train two young novelists and two young playwrights to write soaps. And they were going to pay us while they did this. Well, I'm a starting out novelist, you know, beginning novelist regular paycheck, I was over the moon. And this is how I learned about soap profit. But I said, I, it was not fun. You'll see in the Literary <laughs> Hub article. It wasn't a good experience. And I had totally repressed it until I started to write. I said, oh my God, I forgot about breakdowns. I forgot about this. I forgot about that. So it really came. Now that was for television soaps. And this is an earlier period for radio soaps. But my nephew's wife, my niece, is a soap actor. She doesn't mind if I call them soaps. Talking to her, I learn a lot about how these things work, and it's very funny. And she's she's very good, and she's had a wonderful career in it. I can plug her, Mary Beth Evans. And so it's a funny world. Ellen, I, mean, I can't believe that this is... I Well, so this Lit Hub piece... Yes, Lit oh Hub. my gosh, what a beautiful... That they have some website. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of addicted to that website. I cannot wait to see this piece and read about this. And the fact that it was in your mind somewhere way, way in the back. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm like bowled over by that. It was... It, now it seems funny in my... When I was going through it, it was not no, enjoyable. Of course not. But. No, no, of course not. Oh my gosh, I'm... I'm still a little bowled over by that. So Fanny now is she's got this job. I don't want to say too much. And she's there's this friend, Charlie, that she makes. And he's I also cast him in the movie, but I won't say who that I have in my mind. I can't wait to hear that. (laughs) I'm sure. And I'm sure you have maybe one of your own as well. There's a scene. So Fanny makes her way through this job market and she gets this job and she actually starts to like it. And she feels it because she's also wanted to be a writer and her voice becomes more and more powerful as the, oh, I'm getting the chills as the book goes on. So there's a scene between Fanny and Ezra, another person that she's interested in, and they're having some trouble in their relationship. But we get to those scenes where Fanny and Ezra are discussing things. I was on the edge of my seat for those conversations, their conflict, that 
tension. I remember actually texting my friend and your friend, Janet, and I said to her, Janet, oh my gosh, this scene between them and that scene. And I was loving them and cringing from the incredibly personal nature of those scenes. The tensions of that couple, you knocked me out, Ellen. I was so glad. Um, yeah, they... I'm not, I mean, I know where the tensions came from there living. I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've lived a long time. The interesting thing that I was thinking about the other night with a novel I was reading is that, and I say this in the book, she always knew Ezra was a decent man. I don't write heavies. I was trying to think of a real, I mean, obviously there are characters in my novels who are bad, but if a relationship doesn't work out or if there is conflict in a relationship, it isn't necessarily because the man is a bad man. I don't know if this says something about the men who have been in my life or that, as I said, my father died when I was young, that I idealize them. But I really, I, you know, I don't think difficulties in relationships are black and white. There are always two people in it. And while I disagree with some of Ezra's ideas, he was of his era. And those were the assumptions he made. I mean, he wanted the best for Fanny. It's just a matter of what he thought was the best. Well, and he also got the rule book, right? So all the people in the book get the rule book for what women should and shouldn't be doing. So he gets that. He follows along with it. He thinks this is how it's supposed to be. So in that sense, he's sympathetic because you know what he's looking for. And sort of Fanny is moving away from that in in these little steps that she's taking. Um, And I love that you said that. There really isn't like a big blowout. There's just these conversations that are just so heartbreaking and illuminative. And I just, I went back and reread those scenes over my coffee this morning and I thought, oh my gosh, Ellen Feldman, (laughs) you need to write all the time. (laughs) Thank you. I do write all the time. (laughs) I will read all of those things. And I do want to go back just a little bit to that 1940s in New York City. When you were writing those and you were sort of looking back at the historical events that were taking place and the locations in New York City where they had lunch and the streets that they walked and the shops, how fun was that to go back and pull those things into the story? That was wonderful. More fun than I should be permitted to have while I'm working. As I said, I love libraries and I uh, do a lot of writing at a subscription library on 79th Street. And I just discovered as I was doing research that the first long shop was a block away from there. And it's, I mean, when I do walk around New York or sit on a bus and look out the window, I do remember some of the things that used to be there and that aren't anymore. And I just feel a terrible nostalgia for it. I mean, I I understand there were difficult things in the world then, and I'm not saying it was a sunnier time or anything, but there were just certain establishments in New York. And I just saw the other day an exhibit of photographs of the old Penn Station before they destroyed it. I was practically in tears. I mean, I remember it's the station where we have all the pictures of the GIs shipping Mm -hmm. out. And the fact that they tore that down breaks my heart. But uh, it was just it's these places that are so evocative of another era and, and a wonderful city and architecturally fascinating. And especially when you consider that some of those places, like when I think of the old B. Altman's, like I have fond memories. It's just just like you're saying, despite the ta- the thing that's going on around you, your happy memories are attached to some of these places like that chock full of nuts over by Carnegie Hall. Like I used to take my sister there 
you know, we were able to go into the city. I will not say how much tokens were back then. (laughs) Not going to date myself fully. (laughs) But like all of those things, like there's a library now where the B. Altman's used to be. Yes. It's the, I think, the business library of the New York Public Library System. And when I started out, I worked in-house in publishing and I worked a block away from that B. Altman's. And they also had a book division in the office. They did. Yes. I mean, I I think probably a lot of the department stores did. There are some parts of the past that are, you know, better. Of course. But going through that with you in this book was really um, so realistic. I was I was there. So, yeah. Tell me about Charlie, because I want to know where he comes from. I want to know where Charlie comes from. This is hysterical. He danced onto the screen, onto my laptop screen, and would not leave. And the more I wrote him, the more I loved him. And one early reader said to me that she kept rooting for Fanny to sleep with him throughout the book. And I mentioned this to another early reader, the fiction writer I said that I'm very close to. And she said, are you kidding? We all wanted to sleep with Charlie. Yes, we did. I, and I don't know where, um, you know, where, where, he, he's my fantasy. He's not based on any character. I'm glad he popped up and stayed around. Oh, I bet a lot of people will be bringing him up as you make your way on this book tour. And speaking of your upcoming book tour, where is the best place for readers to find you as you make your journey? I know you've got a big event coming up on February 20th with our friend Janet Schneider. Where can people find you for these events? Uh, well, I have a website, www.ellenfeldman.com. We have listed the in-person conversation with Janet Schneider, librarian, wonderful librarian. Extraordinaire. Yeah. And uh, and the others will be online and they will be posted when, when I have more of a schedule. Okay, that's great. So because, as I said earlier, I need you to write all the things immediately. Anything you might be able to share about what you're working on next? I have a, a lot of it, but I, it's a rough draft still. Okay, It's not historical, and in a sense it is. It starts in 1963, and it goes up to 2022. And it's about a woman and her two close friends. They're girls when it begins. They're very young women until they're grandmothers. Uh, they're very involved in politics. They're in the center of things and care passionately. And it's some of the things they live through. And it's, again, the evolution of women. You know, we didn't mention this earlier on. The women who were sent back after the war, sent back to be good wives and mothers, their daughters were the ones that made the feminist revolution of the 70s. And some women were perfectly happy to give up their jobs and go home and live differently. Some women did not like it. There's a story, there's a moment in this book, The Trouble With You, where her friend Susanna, who has a job during the war, and the real editor comes back and she throws her typewriter at him. She's so angry. (laughs) I read in in a book about what happened to women after the war, a nonfiction book. And so I th- a lot of women who were dissatisfied raised daughters who were going to do something about it. It's It's been interesting to me because while I lived through this period from 63 to 2022, I don't think I saw, how, when you're living through change, I'm not sure that you appreciate the change because it's a daily increment. I perceived it much more, much more acutely from a distance now as I was writing this. It's the backsliding that I find terrifying now. I go through these decades in the late 20th century where women are making progress 
and then we look at what's happening today. So this concerns me very much. On the other hand, I write fiction. It has to be everything, all the public events, all the political events and public events in this book I'm working on have to be perceived personally mm-hmm. through individual characters because otherwise it's a nonfiction treatise which, you know, I want to read, I admire them, but that's not what I feel qualified to write. And I love that when you're writing Chloe, she sees her mom working and doesn't think anything's wrong with that. I saw my mom working in the 60s and I was like, well, of course I'm going to go get a job. What else would I do? Like, it didn't occur to me to do anything else. I like that it doesn't occur to Chloe. Um, So I'm excited for that. Any book recommendations you can share? I know you probably don't have a lot of time to read with all the things that are going on right now. Anything you could recommend to our listeners? Two writers, uh, Lisa Evans, they're both English. Lisa's, her books are marvelous. Mm-hmm. They're not well known here. They're set either during the war, but in London or right before or right after. And she's terrific. And then Elizabeth Jane Howard, who died, uh, she has five novels, The Cazalet Chronicles, that are just marvelous. They've been reissued. And everybody I know with different tastes, I mean, my husband and I read some things and then frequently our tastes diverge. He loved these. He couldn't put them down. I have friends, men, women, everybody I have suggested these books to falls in love with them. And in fact, the man who uh, runs the bookstore, I live across the street from a bookstore here in town. He's the one who first who gave me the first volume. It's it's kind of one of those things. There are people read them and keep passing them on. It's funny that you mentioned that because maybe a month ago, there's a section in the New York Times Magazine section, and I forget there's this little corner box where they talk about books, and that was mentioned. One of the interesting things about Elizabeth Jane Howard's Castlet Chronicles is that it was not taken seriously by men when it was written. It was dismissed again a woman's book, a girl's book. Same thing with Mary McCarthy's The Group, which I oh, love. Yeah. And her early reviews of that, especially there was a Norman Mailer review that dismissed it as a silly girl's book. I mean, there have been lots of articles on this that women's books get different kind of jackets. Oh, sure, yeah. But the cover it, for your book is fantastic. I think, yeah, I think that the publisher did a wonderful job with that cover. And it's Fanny. Yes, it's Fanny walking off into the future. I mean, what better? I'm going with her. Yeah. I, I loved everything about this book. I love this interview. I really am so appreciative that you took the time to sit down and talk about the trouble with you with us. I am very, very grateful, Alan. Caroline, this has been just delightful. I, I mean, the only thing that's as much fun as writing is talking about your writing. <laughs> and I will be here for whatever comes next. Thank you. I will definitely stay in touch. And as I said, I appreciate what you do. I think libraries and librarians are crucial in our society and underappreciated. From your lips, as they say, from your lips, I will post all of Ellen's amazing suggestions and book club choices. The Trouble With You by today's guest, the amazing Ellen Feldman, will be on shelves in February. So please grab a copy at your local library or your local independent bookstore. The Trouble With You is published by St. Martin's Griffin. Ellen, thank you again for joining us here on Top Shelf. Listeners, thank you so much for joining both of us today. Remember to follow Top Shelf at Merrick Library wherever you find most podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library, check out our website at MerrickLibrary.org. Thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chusmere, Assistant Director Miera Broderick, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on 
to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your top shelf.